0: I'm going to start the Great, I'm going to start the call. Okay. Uh, welcome everybody to our national monthly peace builders call on the second Tuesday of every month. Tonight's call is being recorded. We're also streaming on Facebook live. And if you haven't already joined our Facebook page, please go to the peace alliance page on Facebook, like us and follow us and share tonight's call with others. Our mission at the Peace Alliance is to inspire civic action for a culture of peace. We hope our calls inspire, educate, and motivate you to mobilize for peace. And uh, there's a link to our website in the chat. And uh, let's take a moment and acknowledge that the lands on which we gather are the ancestral and traditional lands of native and indigenous peoples of the Americas. We express our gratitude for their care of this land and pay our respect to elders, both past and present. And if you don't know the lands on which you live, there is a link in the chat. You can go there and find out. So our National Peace Builders Call features peace innovators and addresses a variety of topics related to strategies that create conditions for peace. On a personal level, we create peace by being peace. And some of our values are empathy, compassion, kindness and connection with ourselves and others. We are guided by the five cornerstones of peace and they are empowering community peace building, humanizing justice systems, cultivating personal peace, fostering international peace and practicing peace in schools. And the five cornerstones of peace building are endorsed in the Blueprint for Peace, and there's a link in the chat. If you click on that link and sign the Blueprint for Peace, it'll notify your state and federal officials that you support policy priorities around peace building and violence reduction, and you want those policy priorities reflected in legislation. So again, the link is in the chat. You can go, you can just click on it and sign it and it automatically goes to your legislators. Um, and then the five cornerstones of peace and the blueprint for peace support the vision and legislation for a US Department of Peacebuilding. This bill calls for a department led by a cabinet level secretary of peacebuilding, whose purpose would be to strengthen, replicate and expand our current evidence-based and practical peacebuilding strategies devoted to ending violence, resolving conflict, and creating and nurturing conditions for peace. Uh, you can find out more about the Department of Peace Building at the link in the chat. You can also read the, the bill. Uh, there's the long version and then just the summary, so you can read uh, one or both. And here to give us an update on the Department of Peacebuilding legislation is Nancy Merritt. Nancy joined the Peace Alliance and Department of Peacebuilding campaign in 2004, and she's worked for passage of the legislation ever since that time. She began serving as state coordinator of California 15 years ago. She's a founding member of the Peace Alliance Department of Peacebuilding Committee, which was formed in early 2011. She represents the Department of Peacebuilding Campaign Committee on the Peace Alliance Leadership Council. She's been instrumental in organizing actions and lobby, lobbying days for the legislation over the last 15 years. And I dare you to keep up with your energy. If you can, then Nancy needs you. So over to you, Nancy. Well, I need everybody else's energy too. Uh-huh. Sure.
1: <laughs> yes, it's nice to be on the call with everybody. Um, Since Dan isn't here, I'm going to start with one of his favorite quotes you've heard a lot of times. Uh, It's Eleanor Roosevelt saying the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. And most people dream a peace on Earth and with the Earth. Uh, Many are not only dreaming that dream, but are also working for that dream. As you likely know, the Department of Peacebuilding campaign has been working for a long time for personal peace to transform to community peace. To transform into an ongoing um, policy and priority within the United States government and other governments in the form of a cabinet level Department of Peacebuilding. Our four seasons are of peacebuilding are now moving from our fall advocacy days to um, holidays for peace. Right now we're still doing the work. We're still spreading the message. Um, we're working on follow-up to congressional meetings we held uh, via Zoom this fall for advocacy days. takes uh, usually doesn't take just one call, but a lot of follow-up calls and connecting with members of Congress. And thanks to Jana Weiss, one of our New York peace builders. We have a meeting uh, with the staff of Congressman Gregory Meeks in New York this Friday. And we just had a terrific call with longtime uh, DOP co-sponsor James McGovern from um, Massachusetts. And you can listen to that call um, on our uh, pod, peace pod. You know, events. We're also working on a resolution with the United Nations calling for um, all member states to support departments of peace building. And we're working on other legislation. We are planning our 22, uh, 2022 strategy, and we'll move into season for nonviolence at the end of January um, with other asks for you all. Today, we're asking you to contact your own members of Congress and uh, ask them, let them know that this, we're not just calling for holidays for peace, but that peace should be every season. Ask them to please uh, co-sponsor the Department of Peace Building. And we're asking you to turn uh, that spark of peace within yourself to actions for a Department of Peace Building there will be a Department of Peace in our government. It's just a matter of time. And as Eleanor Roosevelt said, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams and who do the work. And if I could figure it out, I would put a whole bunch of stuff in the chat, but somehow it's not letting me. Um, (laughs) So I don't know, do I just copy and paste from a- Uh Uh-huh, yeah, just copy and paste. But it won't. Well, okay. I'll try it again. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I really um, appreciate all that you all are doing, and um, urge you to get get active and get involved in our Department of Peace Building efforts, along with everything else that you're all doing. So thank you, and I'll I'll try this great experiment of getting
0: it to to paste. Okay. okay. Thank you. So <laughs> back back to you, Kathy. Okay. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, so I'm going to. Uh, we're going to listen, h- hear from our guest speaker, Lynn Lee, in a moment. Uh, she was brought to us by Patty Latai, so Patty will be introducing her. After Lynn speaks, we'll have 15 minutes for Q and A. Uh, sometimes we can't get to all the questions. So, and if you want to put a question in the chat, you can do that. We'll we'll pay attention to those questions too. Uh, This is a difficult topic for some. So if you need to leave the call after the talk begins, or if you think the topic of compassionate, high impact dialogues in sexual violence may be a difficult one for you and you need to leave now, do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. Uh, So I'm going to introduce Patty Latai, who will then introduce Lynn. Uh, Patty serves on the Peace Alliance Leadership Council as the Humanizing Justice Systems Lead as well as the social media lead. She served as the executive program director and as the lead facilitator and trainer for victim offender conferencing in full circle restorative justice from 2006 to 2019. Patty's experience as a Rotary Peace Fellow in Bangkok, Thailand in 2015 was a pivotal point in her career as an international peace professional. She has a number of published works and photos in corporate and media publications, regional newspapers and magazines, and in Chicken Soup for the Working Woman's Soul. Patty is an international speaker on methods of nonviolent communication and restorative justice. She's an animal and nature person and is the author of the book, Pause, P-A-W-S, for Peace, Enhancing Restorative Practices with Therapy Dogs. And she's currently working on her children's book, No Bears for Patty. So Patty, uh, great to have you on the call tonight and thank you for bringing uh, Lynn Lee to us and I'll turn it over to you.
2: Thank you, Kathy, for that very um, um, wonderful introduction and um, really appreciate all of your efforts in in making this um, call happen on a monthly basis and for all the other work that you do as well. So thank you. Um, I am honored to be here, and I'm here mainly because I'd like to introduce um, Lynn Lee, who is a force of nature in the restorative justice field. Um, it's a pleasure to introduce her. I've met Lynn when she was my trainer um, in high-impact dialogues and working with incarcerated individuals, and uh bringing individuals who are um, sentenced and actually in prison and meeting with their um, their victims, the people they harmed, um, and in working within the restorative justice framework of trying to repair the harm by having a dialogue between the two individuals, um, the individuals that were harmed and the individual that caused the harm. So. Um, So I was fortunate enough to be part of that training. Um, Then Lynn became a board member um, for Full Circle Restorative Justice in Salida, Colorado while I was the executive director. So we worked closely together then. Um, She has also been a supporter and a reviewer of my book, Pause for Peace. And um, she is a member of um, the Colorado Coalition for RJ Practices and also a member of the National Association of Community Restorative Justice, and was one of the main individuals who spearheaded the national conference in Denver in 2019. Um, Together with her husband, Senator Pete Lee, um, they have pioneered many different approaches and also um, proposed, supported, and participated in numerous um, social justice reforms that are founded in the restorative practices um, approach. So it is my honor to introduce Lynn. Um, She is, as I mentioned, a driving force and pioneer in restorative justice in the state of Colorado, which is actually one one state that is one of the leaders in the Colorado um, in restorative justice. And she is most importantly a mentor and a dear friend. So thank you for joining us, Lynn. We appreciate your willingness to share, especially on this sensitive topic.
3: Well, oh, thank you so much, Patty. Thank you all for having me tonight. Um, I think I'd like to start with this poem. This really resonates with me in the context of the work that I do in restorative justice. It's called Holding the Light by Stuart Kastenbaum gather up whatever's glittering in the gutter, whatever has tumbled in the waves or fallen in flames out of the sky. For it's not only our hearts that are broken, but the heart of the world as well. Stitch it back together. Make a place where the day speaks to the night and the earth speaks to the sky. Whether we created God or God created us, it all comes down to this in our imperfect world we are meant to repair and stitch this together what beauty there is stitch it with compassion and wire see how everything we have made gathers a light inside itself and overflows a blessing so thank you um yes it is really a joy to be with you and Um, discuss this work that I've started doing the last couple of years with you. I've been working in restorative justice for about 20 years. um, And there's a few of you on here who I've seen many times before COVID. So it's sort of nice to see you um, once again. But I, in 2012, I think I is the first what you might think of, or what is usually termed victim offender dialogue. Um, That was the first one of those dialogues held in Colorado Department of Corrections. I since then have changed that terminology because I feel really uncomfortable defining people by the probably worst moment in their lives. So I feel really uncomfortable calling people victims and offenders, and so now I call those high-impact dialogues. Um, Dialogues, high-impact dialogues with people who have experienced sexual harm to me are, um, I don't, I'm not sure how to put it. I look up at restorative justice as being a continuum So maybe, you know, on the left are restorative circles and then we move along the continuum and maybe come to um, community group conferencing and then high impact dialogue. And then past that, I think of high impact dialogue with people who have experienced sexual harm. So it can be really challenging and really difficult work and brings um, challenges that other work hasn't brought that I've done. Um, I think a really fascinating statistic to me is they've determined that about 95% of people who've experienced sexual harm do not report. So I look at those 95% of people who have no alternatives um, because they have chosen not to engage with the criminal legal system. Um, I personally have stopped calling it the criminal justice system because I really struggle to find much justice in there. So I've um, been calling it the criminal legal system. So of that 95% of people who choose not to report, um, there are a number of people who've experienced sexual harm, whether it's through sex assault or um, domestic violence, who still have needs around understanding what happened to them. So a couple of years ago, I started getting um, calls from People who have experienced sexual harm, maybe family members, maybe good friends um, who were asking me to facilitate high impact dialogues with people who've caused them harm. So I've been doing um, that work for the last couple of years. My expertise is really in restorative justice, um, not in working with as a victim advocate. So I always do this work with somebody who has expertise in sex assault or domestic violence. So in high impact dialogue, we always have two facilitators. So in these kinds of cases, it would be me and somebody with the expertise in the area of um, sexual harm. And that always is really helpful to me um, in understanding some of the um, pieces that are really important in conducting these kinds of dialogues. So generally when I'm doing high impact dialogue work, in order for us to bring people together, it can take anywhere from four months to a year maybe longer maybe a year and a half i can't give you a specific amount of time because everybody's different and everybody has their own timeline about becoming ready and that includes the person who was harmed as well as the person who created that harm so i want to describe um maybe a case that a couple, if I have time, cases that were brought to me so that you can um, be clearer about what the work looks like and feel free to ask me questions and I will answer them as well as I can. Um, One of the cases I'd like to describe to you. So in Colorado, we have laws around high-impact dialogue and one of them is that this kind of work has to be initiated by the victim so when I'm whenever I'm doing this kind of work I have gotten contact from a victim or um, like I said earlier they're a family member a support person for them so A little while ago i just finished this case actually a couple months ago maybe two months ago um, and it took about six months and a family member had contacted me and asked me if i would bring together a brother and sister who were in their late 20s early and 30 early 30s and they had a rift in their relationship had developed Um, she had experienced sexual and physical harm from him, him, her older brother, um, from the time she was about five until she left home to go to college. So they had been pretty close throughout that time. And up until the time they contacted me and then the sister stopped contact, um, So there was a pretty big rift in their relationship at that point. We always invite people to bring support people. So we ask them to bring support persons, people who would be there to support them, to help them. It's a pretty intense moment when they come together. So sometimes people have a really hard time remembering what happened because um, it is so, at the very beginning, emotionally difficult. Um, so we started working with her, and I'm going to call her Hannah. I'm not using the real names, and I'm going to call him Jim. So we started working with Hannah initially, um, and we did this over Zoom because of COVID. I have never done that before. Um, usually I'm meeting in person, but as you all know, Um, COVID has brought us a different way of of being with each other so we started meeting with Hannah to um, determine help her determine what it was that she wanted to hear from him what she wanted to tell him Um, and those kinds of things can change over time so And they did change for her as well. So she started with, she wanted total accountability. Um, She wanted to be in control of the conversation. She didn't want him to talk about other things. So she had a list of things that she was looking for. And um, we were really conscious of those and talked with her about those and worked through those with her over a couple of months. And in the meantime, we were also meeting with her brother. um, And when we're meeting with the person who um, created harm, we're really working to develop a relationship with him. Right. So we want to develop trust with him and. Having good to know us a little bit so that when they come together and sit down together, um, he will be more comfortable and he will be able to provide what she's looking for. So, we're meeting with him to develop a relationship, but also to um, help determine if he's going to be able to give her what she's looking for. Right. So, we have a list of things that she wants. We don't tell him what that list is, but we. Are working through those things with him just in having conversations. Over a period of time, um, her needs changed. So she ended up writing a letter that she wanted to read. She was no longer, after about three or four months, she was no longer interested in total accountability. It was more about her being having an opportunity and a facilitated dialogue to... Um, say the things that she needed to say to him. There was also a period of like two months in there when they didn't talk to us, um, which was really sort of fascinating. I've never had that happen before, but um, yeah, we sort of lost contact in a way. I mean, we had their contact information but they weren't responding back to us. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what was going on then. So we had originally talked about um, the person who was harmed in this case, wanted to meet in person and only one of them lived in Colorado, so they had chosen the same support people, they're in a family together, so they had chosen um, the same um, two family members to participate with them. This happens really often. So the closer and closer we get to bringing them together, you know, we start talking about, yeah, we're getting there. Um, Doesn't, I don't think we'll be having to meet too much longer maybe we'll meet one or two more times. Maybe that's when the two months happened. Now that I think about that, that it hasn't actually happened that way before, but I think that's when the two months happened. Um, so the closer we get in high impact dialogue, the more people start to, um, worry, I guess is the right way to put it. The more concerned they become, um, so eventually, like I said, we were all going to meet together. We were going, they were going to all come to Colorado, um, And the young lady who had been harmed decided that she wanted to do the conference over Zoom. Um, So that was fascinating to me. We've not done that before either. Um, I think, you know, what's really important for me in this kind of work is to be flexible and to be listening to what it is that they want and say that they need and accommodate um, victims or harm parties as much as possible. So we talked about the pros and cons of meeting by video. um, And actually, in the end, decided that yes, we would have the conference by video. And all of us would stop our videos, except the two of them. So they would be we, were, we wanted to create a place where they were really just engaging with each other without all of us watching them. Um, so that was also sort of something I've never done before. Um, but they were really excited about that and felt really good about that. So we did. We held that conference in that way. Um, and she was, a, I always think about, empowering victims so I feel like it's really important to empower people to be able to sort of hold their own conference so hopefully we've done all of the work up front that we need to do to make it possible for her to be able to facilitate that dialogue herself and the only time we would intervene is if something wasn't going well or if she asked for our help um, which she didn't need um, so that was really great. Um, they had their conversation and the two family members that were supporting them struggled quite a bit. Um, and we ended up having, um, more discussion with those two family members after the words than we did with a uh, brother and sister actually, um, uh, You know, I think, and so this was what in some ways might be thought of a domestic violence case. It's not legally termed a domestic violence case, but it was a family violence case. Um, So what happens with that is a lot of other family members um, take on guilt that they didn't do enough, that they weren't there to help their family members. So those were pieces that we had to work through in um, making sure that everybody was okay after that coming together. So that was one case that I worked on. And then I want to describe something else because I think it's really important to remember and understand that Domestic violence and sex assault, those are not all pedophile cases or those are not all rape cases. So there's a big range of offenses that fit into domestic violence and sex assault. So another um, case that I had worked on, and hopefully I can describe this to you, it's a little bit complicated, but It was in one of our mountain communities in an apartment complex that occurred. And there was a couple living in an apartment who fought pretty often. And a young man, another couple, a young man and his girlfriend who lived next door. So the couple who fought all of the time, that was what everybody described. So that's not... (laughs) I'm not saying that. That's what they told me. Um, So they fought a lot. Um, They were yelling at each other. They took their argument out in the hallway. And he was choking her. And she bit him. So while that was happening, the young man from the apartment next door, heard them fighting, wanted to help, picked up the gun that was on the counter as he was walking out the door. and walked out and pointed the gun at the guy who was choking his girlfriend. In Colorado, when somebody makes a 911 call for a domestic violence event, somebody gets charged. Somebody has to get charged, so the police have to charge somebody. So in this case, the lady who was being choked was charged with domestic violence because She bit her boyfriend and left a mark. He was choking her, but that didn't leave any marks. So she was charged. And thank you for those of you who are shaking your head now, because, you know, that's what feels really important to me is that we understand that um, it can be so many things and it's not what we always imagine, right? It's not what we always think about. So I was asked to actually bring together the young lady who was choked and the young man from next door who came out with his gun, who was also charged. Um, As I told you, oh, you'll love this Patty. So as we met in person um, in this case, and this was in Breckenridge. um, So if you live in Colorado, you certainly know where Breckenridge is. So we met in person and he brought the young man with a gun, brought his mom to the conference and the young lady who had been choked by her boyfriend brought her therapy dog, which Patty will appreciate and a friend of hers. Um, And then I had um, somebody that who had worked in a rape crisis center and another community member that I brought as a um, sort of a role model for young men, right? And it was really a wonderful coming together. Those two people were both charged. So the other gentleman, or the other person, maybe he's a gentleman, I don't know, I never met him. But <laughs> the other person was not charged, who was doing the choking. Um, so I brought those two people together with their support people. And It was really wonderful. Um, The young man's mom talked a lot about her being a victim of domestic violence when he was growing up, um, why he responded the way that he did. The young lady who had been choked, uh, she said this is, she was a social worker actually, she said, this is a real wake up call for me. I keep choosing men who um, abuse me, physically abuse me. So in that case, we actually had come up with an agreement. Um, they were charged, so we came up in great, with an agreement that we could share with the court about how he was going to repair the harm, and she offered him to support him in that. Um, so, yeah, those are just two examples of the kind of work that I might ask, be asked to do in the field of domestic violence or sex assault. Um, I'd love to hear your questions, but I also want to just describe a few things for you that are going on in Colorado that I'm pretty excited about. Um, we have an organization, it's a nationwide organization, so it might be in your community as well. It's called the Cicasa, the Colorado Coalition Against Sex Assault, and it's an organization that has about 20 mm. coalition members, and they applied for a grant, which they received, and they are working, and they have four consultants. I'm one of them. So they have four consultants, and have four um, areas around the state that have applied for the grant. And one of them, I'll just describe one of them. One of them is a halfway house for women who are coming out of prison. And when I went to the women's prison in Denver, I asked how many of the women here have been. Um, victims of sexual violence and the response was about 98 percent. So the idea with CCASA and the funding that they provided is how do we provide restorative transformative justice practices to these women to help them be successful once they um, fully enter into their communities. So I'm really excited about that grant, that possibility. I'm really excited about restorative justice moving into um, the areas of domestic violence and sexual assault. And I think that there's, I'm developing a class with another friend of mine and Patty's um, who works in the field of domestic violence. So we're developing a training for people to um, feel confident in facilitating these types of cases. So, yeah, those are two examples of some of the work I've been asked to do in Colorado here. And I'd love to answer any questions that you have or thoughts you want to share. Great. Thank you, Lynn. Mm-hmm. Anybody
0: have a question they want to ask? Ten- uh Yes, go ahead. You're uh, muted. I think Jack's hand
2: was up first, so Jack wants to go. Okay, oh, that's,
4: that's fine. I was just going to ask you: um, have you followed up with any of the um people you've worked with to see if you know how relationships you know have evolved, and you know if an intervention you know made a difference.
3: Um. So the case in Breckenridge that I talked about, I actually um, I haven't reached out to the young man, but I have reached out to the young lady um, and would really like to engage her actually in developing a, a restorative justice program um, in that part of the state. We don't have anything there right now. So that was a very positive experience for her. I have spoken with the young man's attorney Um and she expresses uh, positive outcomes for him as well. The case with the brother and sister, that is still pretty new. I haven't reached out to them. I would really like to reach out to their family members. Um, Young people are sort of interesting. I have three young adults, actually, myself, and these two kids are about the age of my two boys. yeah, so we can, you know, they tend to want to communicate by texting, which doesn't um, lend itself to a lot of conversation. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah, thank you.
3: You're welcome. Thank you, Jack.
0: Tess and then Geraldine. Well, thank you. So
2: nice to hear your stories, Lynn. Um, I am thinking about the last one and the injustice around the, um, the, the victim being charged rather than the offender. Um, I get curious about this kind of community accountability piece. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm curious, I know that like transformative justice tries to operate more within that space. I know that it's, you know, context specific and there are it's, it's not right for every situation, but um, yeah, I was just curious your thoughts on that and maybe what you think the barriers, maybe like what, what are the opportunities and the barriers for um, holding community, you know, communities and states and institutions accountable as we do this work.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I'm actually really excited about what I see coming out of the transformative justice movement. I think um, communities, if communities can develop processes um, to help repair harm themselves, that would be so helpful in the context of not um, destroying communities, not destroying families. Um, I just finished a six week long class in transformative justice and I thought it was really fabulous actually. So I am really excited about that movement and excited about the possibilities and hoping that in Colorado, we um, were talking about developing some community hubs um, to offer those kinds of services. So I'm hoping that that, um, yeah, gain some traction and we do Chicago has um, some community hubs, and I don't know where you're from, Tess, but um, it might be interesting to look that up.
2: Well, thank you. That's exciting
0: to
5: hear.
3: Yeah.
0: Thank you, Tess. Gerilyn?
3: Yes.
5: Hi, Lynn. It's Hi. So wonderful to see you. Hope to see you in, in Chicago. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm located in uh, Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I'm part of the uh, city council's uh, domestic violence uh, task force, if you will. And uh, it has taken years. They used to think I was nuts when I would bring up the subject of restorative justice. So it's really warms my heart to see the progress uh, mm-hmm. that you all have made in Colorado. Uh, that being said, we have statewide organizations, both on DV and uh, sexual assault. And we have now come together to have uh, joint meetings in terms of working on uh, policy issues that can be a benefit for both. Uh, getting to the point of the choking, uh, this has been going on uh, well forever, mm-hmm. uh, and, and especially if if you don't have a witness, and that there, and the problem being that not leaving any marks you know, for uh, the victim to be able to take pictures of. And so we've, we've been working on trying to get the policy or legislation, if you will, through uh, to deal with this very issue because it is a life-threatening. When, when you go to choke someone, I mean, people have lost their life being choked to death. I mean, that's un- un- unfortunate, but it can occur. And uh, it and it's all, all often used, especially in domestic violence. So I was just wondering, in Colorado, uh, are you doing anything in regards to policies and in regarding uh, the choking?
3: Yeah. So, um you know, but. Maybe some of you don't. My husband's a state legislator. He's sitting right over here. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) he is working on what he's calling a victim empowerment bill for this session. Um, So, yeah, I think by the time we get to Chicago, there's a National Restorative Justice Conference in Chicago in July. Um, He'll have some information about that bill and whether or not it passed and what it looked like when it did pass, um, hopefully. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Things often change from the beginning until. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once it's been through the sausage oh. grinder, he calls it.
5: <laughs> He'll be able to share that, in, that info, which is, yeah, yeah. He, he's always been wonderful and uh, definitely a lead person in pushing forward with policy in regards to uh, these issues. So I'm grateful for him.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Good to see you, Geraldine. Thank you, Geraldine.
0: Uh, there's a question in the chat, uh, the which family members
3: were in, involved with the dialogue between the sister and the brother? So their mom had died from cancer when they were teenagers, um, and their dad was a um, pretty violent alcoholic. Um, so the two sisters of the mom were the support people for them in the conference.
0: Okay. <laughs> Linda, did you want to go next? Oh, you're okay. muted.
4: Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, well, first of all, greetings from Quebec, Canada. Um, I was just wondering, Lynn, when you were describing the uh, stream of events during the uh, one of the cases there, um, and you said that you – Generally, you would meet with the, um, for lack of a better term, perpetrator um, several times too to develop trust and to build a relationship. Um, Do you tend to share with him or her ahead of time what the victim wants out of the meeting
3: or do you just let that be organic? So I let that be organic. I never share any information between them. Mm -hmm. Um, People will ask, um, but, you know, I'll just say, you know, we're doing well. We had a good meeting. Um, We have another meeting planned for the state. Or if you'd like me to let you know when we have our next meeting planned, I'll let you know. I never share any information. I feel like it's not my story to tell. Yeah. 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 So that's good. Don't
4: share anything. Yeah. And that, that would be pressure too. That would, that would be sort of steering, steering things. And, you know,
3: people change their mind. So she had a, you know, set of things she thought she wanted when we first started and that changed over time. And that's typical that happens pretty often. Um, So, yeah. And I want to empower her enough to get what she needs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you. Great work.
3: How were these meetings funded? Um, I just saw that question in the chat. That's (laughs) really a great question. Um, So I would never ask um, someone who's been harmed to pay a fee. So it just depends on where I'm working. If I'm working in the Department of Corrections, they have a fund to pay us a stipend as facilitators. Um, Sometimes uh, the person who was responsible for the harm um, will be able to pay a fee. So if they're not incarcerated, they can do that. Um, sometimes family members will help pay a fee. I would never turn away somebody because they couldn't afford it. I have a fund um, that I've sort of set aside for people who are indigent or people who can't afford to um, pay the fee.
0: So when you when you go into the prisons, are you invited in there by by somebody or did you uh, cultivate relationships in order to go in there?
3: Well, that's a interesting question. Um, <laughs> so. In Colorado, usually if I have um, somebody that, uh, victims come to me and wants to meet somebody who's incarcerated, I go through victim services and Department of Corrections. They don't always approve, um, I have a case right now that I'm working on um, and they're probably not gonna approve of this uh, gentleman going through a restorative justice process. So I think what's going to happen is they're going to take him out of the prison, put him in the county jail for the purpose of restorative justice and just for the meeting. And then he'll go back to, he has a life sentence. So he'll go back to Department of Corrections. So usually I'm working through victim services.
0: Okay. So the victim reaches out and wants to uh, try to get some, Mm -hmm. something from the offender.
3: Yeah, if they're if the person who committed the offense is in DOC, then I will, and I get a direct call from somebody who's a victim. Um, then I will tell them to contact victim services for DOC, and I'll give them that contact information, and then tell them to let them know that they'd like me to facilitate, and then they'll give that to me. Gotcha. So does the offender ever reach out and want to? They would like to. Our laws right now don't allow for that. There are a lot of people who have committed offenses um, who are incarcerated, who would love to be a part of this process. I would love to see that law changed or at least have there be more reach out to victims so that they would know that there is, um, this possibility is available for them.
0: Right, so the victim has, a ch- the a survivor has a choice. Yes, yes. Um, let's see, Marsha.
6: Hi, uh, thank you so much, Lynn. I really appreciated hearing your experiences. Um, and I guess my question is, um, I'm familiar with nonviolent communication. I'm an NVC trainer and done some restorative work but it's that sense of i'd love to hear from you how you how you support the um person who's received the harm in working with their own um like if trauma is going to be Mm -hmm. re-triggered and i know the support people there and and you walk alongside like to really get do you have a particular thing that you're looking for that gives a sense of like oh they're empowered enough or they're they have enough support to to go ahead or you're just listening to the person and sort of what they're wanting, you know, does that well,
3: make That's like a big question, right? That's <laughs> a really complicated answer. I had a case um, not just a couple months ago with a young man who killed his brother. They were both um, high on heroin and meth and um, he killed his younger, older brother. He killed his older brother. That happened in January. They contacted me in July, I'll say. So six months old, oh my gosh. That is so, so the family wanted to meet with him before he went to prison. Um, For sure he was going to prison. So that was what you're asking me about, the amount of trauma that they were experiencing um, was pretty extreme. So I, with them, I did not um, engage as much as I usually would, right? So I really tried to take cues from them about what they were ready to do, how much time they were willing to spend with me. Um, I would have liked to been able to spend more time with them but because of the system I wasn't able to and because of the place that they were in, I wasn't able to. They did end up meeting with him, but I also told them that if they want to meet with him again, once he's incarcerated and been there for a year or two, I would set that up for them because the level of trauma that they were experiencing was just amazing. Um, A lot of times I see cases that occurred a long time ago, might've occurred 35 years ago, might've occurred 17 years ago. That's a whole different thing, right? Those they can still be traumatized and they will be traumatized, but it's at a different level, right? Um, And this was interesting um, to me, the family members in the first case that I described were struggling quite a bit. So I, at one point said to them, are you familiar with the ACEs study? Are you guys all familiar with that? Adverse childhood experiences? If you're not, um, look it up, it's really interesting. And I asked these two women, the support people to look up ACEs because I wanted them to understand what the young people in their family had experienced how it had affected them, and how it was going to continue to affect them, right? So this isn't like one moment in their lives. This is a lifetime experience for them. Um, That was really helpful to them. So I would probably do that again um, if it seemed appropriate. So yeah, there, you know, we don't really have time to answer that (laughs) question fully, um, because everybody's in a different place, right? But I think it's really important for us as facilitators to be really conscious of where people are and how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes at the end of a conversation with somebody, I might say, what are you going to do tonight? Um, Do you have somebody that you can talk with? Um, or, you know, they might say, Oh, I'm going to go to the spa or I'm going to go for a hike or, you know, so I'll talk to them a little bit about self care and what their plans are for the evening if I know they're struggling. Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We have a couple of minutes. Is there any, any other question?
6: I had another one, but I didn't want to do two. So. Go ahead, Marsha. Go ahead. You'll be the last one. <laughs> okay. And you can stop me if somebody else has something. It was just the sense of um, what you do to help prepare yourself to um, have these conversations and what you do after.
3: Yeah. So, you know, that's part of that is that I'm always working with somebody else. So that's really helpful. Um I am actually an introvert. Um, So when I have a meeting with somebody and it feels particularly difficult, um, you know, I'd like to come home and be with my husband, but not talk to him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I love to hike. I love to paint. I, you know, have a lot of different ways of, um, spending time where I can work through things or just not think about things at all. So I'm really conscious of that. Um, Usually by the time we come together, that moment, that meeting, although it's really tough at the very beginning, it's also really wonderful. Um, So I'm usually really pretty excited about that by the time we get done. Mm,
0: That's great. Well, uh, thank you, Lynn. This has been a fascinating conversation. This work is pretty remarkable. Not everybody could do it. I'm glad to hear that you have a lot of things that you do to take care of yourself. Thank you for being here.
3: Thank you so much. I also want to just thank you for your really thoughtful questions. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: And thank you, Patty. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate you setting this up.
2: My pleasure, Kathy. And um, I I know that I'm taking away quite a bit of information. I took some uh, notes as we went along. And um, I think, is there, do we have contact information for Lynn if anybody would like to follow up or um, or for Peace Alliance?
0: Uh, Well, there was, uh, we put the information for uh, rj.org in the, in the chat, but um, just anything you want to anything more you want to give Patty. Um, Oh, Lynn just put her email in there. there.
3: Okay, great. great.
0: All right, I'm going to close. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Um, So we're going to paste some links into the chat uh, for you to click and check out. Uh, We uh, have some Tuesday programs we have started. Uh, The last Tuesday of this month is fifth Tuesday feedback so come and give us any feedback you have it any questions you have you know that you want to know about anything that we're doing join us on that night and then our next empathy circle is the first Tuesday in December and it'll be the first Tuesday and every month going forward and uh, you can see the link in the chat for the Tuesday night calls And uh, we also have the hope story circles on the second and fourth Saturdays of the month. And this idea uh, started from a discussion about how to stay connected as the world was going into lockdown due to COVID. And so we've been doing this since early 2020 and it's a community peace building hour in which we offer a supportive environment for active listening, authentic expression and the uplifting of others through the power of storytelling. So every uh, second and fourth Saturday, we have somebody who comes on and just shares a little, little, bit, little bit about themselves and any challenge they've overcome or um, anything that uh, all, you know, they needed some hope in their life to get through something. And so the link for that is in the chat We especially appreciate donations. If you love and benefit the programs we offer, consider donating. We're a small nonprofit and appreciate donations of any size. In particular, we appreciate monthly donors so that we can continue to support these kinds of programs with sustainable income. Uh, The first link is to donate to the Peace Alliance. And if you wanna donate specifically to the Department of Peacebuilding, that's the second link. And then there's the next link is our peace on podcast where you can find the podcast of all of our Tuesday national peace builder calls, our department of peace building calls, our hope story circles and uh, other great content is there for you to enjoy. And actually we have, we have a lot of people download our podcast. So uh, it's a great place to, to go. If you have missed one of our calls, any events that we are, uh, that, we are, that are happening. We have a calendar with all the events. Uh, if you go to the, the website, it's in the top right-hand corner and you can click on the calendar and on any day, it'll show you what's going on and then click on that day and it'll give you the, the Zoom link to the call. Any other questions, you can always contact us at info at peacealliance.org. I'm going to uh, close with a quote, but again, just thank you, Lynn. And thank you, Patty. This has been Um, Just a very rich experience. So closing quote for tonight. Peace appeals to the heart, thinking to the brain. Both are needed and indeed are indispensable. But equally indispensable is a link between the brain and the heart. And that in a nutshell is what peace studies and peace practices are all about. And that's from Johan Galtung, who's the father of uh, peace studies programs. So join us uh, uh, the fifth Friday, the first Tuesday and the second Tuesday next month. And thank you all for being here. Good night. Good night, Lynn. Good night, Patty. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.